Let's take our Bibles tonight, and we'll turn to John. John, and I believe we're going to be in chapter 20, 19, excuse me, chapter 19 of John. And what a service this morning. And praise the Lord for the one or several that trusted Christ as their Savior. And I looked over. I, I peek sometimes during prayer. And so I'm a preacher. And so I got so excited to see the hands raise up. And I want to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Can I say to you tonight, if you are one of those and you do not know for sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven, tonight would be a great night to be born again. I was talking to Miss uh, Wendy. I don't know if I see her here tonight. And uh, Mrs. Broughton. And uh, there you are. I knew you were hiding here somewhere. And she said, do you remember four years ago? She said, after Austin got saved and I got saved. And she said, it's been completely different ever since. And we enjoyed her testimony again. She said, I taught Sunday school for over 40 years. Struggling with my salvation. But isn't it good when you just get it settled? You know, I prayed a sinner's prayer several times before I got saved. Did you know that? I was in, uh, I went to a good church in Chesterton, Indiana, and they witnessed to me when I was three years old. They gave me the first time I ever heard the gospel, and it was on a flannel board and all that kind of stuff, and I remember the stone rolling away just at three years old, four years old, seeing the plan of salvation played out. When I was a young person, we moved to Milwaukee. Everything we had burned up in a fire when I was five years old, and so we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When we got to Milwaukee, we were to anybody that would run a bus or a van. And so I went to a lot of Assembly of God churches. And back then, they preached a straight gospel. And I heard it many a time. And then one day, we went to the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. It was started by an independent Baptist preacher. And as a matter of fact, he pastored in the state of Florida for many years after that. But he started this rescue mission in the city of Milwaukee. And uh, he, was, he was just, as a matter of fact, I met him a couple years ago. He used to come to our church. And uh, every year, he still had family up there. And I remember going into a side room, going to, coming on their buses, going into a side room and hearing the gospel and praying with the person. But something just did not connect with me at that time. I remember I was in a back bedroom on the south side of Milwaukee. And and uh, when I started, before I started going to our current church right now, and I remember one of my cousins who knew the Lord, and we were in a back bedroom back there, and he started explaining to us the gospel. And then he said, you can pray and receive Christ as your Savior. And I remember going through the ritual of prayer with him. And I did not get saved, though. Something did not connect. What was not connecting was moving from my head, moving down to my heart. I heard all the facts about salvation. I knew he was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'd heard those things, much like many of you that were in denominational religion. You heard terminology like that. I heard that Jesus died for our sins. I even memorized John 3.16, but something had to move from my head knowledge to a heart knowledge to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember coming to our church, and I remember as a bus kid going out, and I wanted to know for sure, and I, I knew I needed to do something, and so I went outside of that classroom, and I dealt with my salvation again, but oh, I remember that night of March 21st, 1993. Can you believe it? Just about five days ago, I celebrated 30 years of being saved. And I remember that night, I remember thinking, if that preacher doesn't stop preaching, it was on a Sunday night just like this. And our church started at 6 o'clock, okay? I got saved around 8.30. 
Do the math, okay? <laughs> My pastor, he believed in preaching long-winded messages. Now you know where I got it from, okay? But he, I remember that night thinking, if this pastor will shut up, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get saved. And thank the Lord, finally, after about two hours of preaching, he cut it down. He was about 20, he was, he was about 10 years younger than I am right now. And uh, just a young pastor, 20-some years of age, maybe 30 at the time, and he, it was his one-year anniversary as the pastor of the church that Sunday. I came and I got saved and I got baptized that night. Oh, what a wonderful day, day I will never forget. After died wonders and darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. There was a time on earth when in the book of heaven an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below, but I went unto the keeper and I settled it long ago. Long ago, long ago, oh, I'm so glad for that day when I got born again by the grace of God. And if you're not born again tonight, you can know what it is to know that you know that you know for the first time in your life, you can lay your head on your pillow tonight with a peace that passes understanding, know that you've been saved. And I thank the Lord for that tonight. I bless the Lord for their salvation. And my, oh my, how, so many in the crowd, they always share with me every year about, we got saved this year when you preach, and I got saved this year when you preach, and my son got saved over here, and my daughter got saved over here. Isn't it wonderful to be in a soul-saving place? In case you hadn't, it's 30 years since I've been saved, but I haven't gotten over it yet. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior, and my God. Was it a happy day for you? Some of us, we had to let our faces know it was a happy day. And uh, I I have so much fun in church. And I've got to tell you about this before we get into the message tonight. Uh, I've said, we were talking about yesterday, I think yesterday, about some of the things that preachers have said by accident as they've been preaching. And no joke, I have have cussed. By accident, I was preaching my aunt's funeral. I won't tell you what I said because Pastor Ferry will repeat it. But um, I, I, I blended two words that should not have been blended together. And there were 700 people at my aunt's funeral. And, uh, and I said, blankety blank. And, uh, and they remind me every year when I see them again. But a couple months ago, about a, about a year and a half ago, I was preaching in, uh, right near St. Louis, Missouri. I was preaching Arnold Baptist Tabernacle. I don't know if you know that name at all. And uh, the former pastor, he's in heaven now. He wrote a book called America in Crimson Red. And uh, it's a wonderful book about the Baptist heritage in America. And, uh, and I won't go into that tonight, but I was at this church and, and I was preaching there. And it was one of those nights where it was just, I was just on a roll. You know what I mean? I mean, you just, you just, as a preacher, you get that funny bone sometimes, and then you're just telling Joe, got the Joe. And it was, it was one of those nights where I was just like on a roll. Everybody in the church is laughing. And I'm preaching, but it's still, you know, the humor. And, and I'm going, I'm going along. And I went over here to a man. And, you know, I do this all the time because, you know, amongst people, I, go, I put my hand out like that. And what do people normally do? They do that, right? So I'm, I'm going on and on, and we're having a good time in church. We're preaching the Bible and loving it. Man, we're rejoicing. And I went over here to a man, and I put out my hand just like that. 
And he was laughing the whole time. He's following me. He's laughing. He's with me 100%. And I put out my hand like this, and he just like laughed at me. And I'm like, this jerk. And I'm thinking, you know how it is sometimes you get into a crowd and somebody, like that fellow yesterday, they'll talk back to you like that because they want to one-up you and be funny, and I would never do that. But, uh, <laughs> but they want to one-up you and be funny and everything else. And I put my hand up, and he, he starts laughing, and he's laughing at me. And I look over down the pastor, and the pastor and the youth pastor are falling out of their chair laughing. And I'm like, it's not that funny. <laughs> and finally, his wife, wished, she nudged him, and she said, honey, you know, da da da, and he's going on that, and 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 and, and finally he's like, all right, whatever, and so he puts his hand out like this, and I put my hand out like that, and at the last second he bumps me like that, and I'm thinking this jerk. After the service, I was talking to the pastor. I'm thinking, you guys, it wasn't that funny. You're laughing at me, this guy here. And they said, Brother Allen, they said you have no idea. They said you just tried to fist bump a blind man. <laughs> And uh, you guessed it right, right there. Yeah, I'm telling you, I, we've done some dumb things in church. Hopefully we won't do any tonight. But uh, John chapter 19, would you stand with me as we read the word of God? John chapter 19, your one last stretch. This is the seventh inning stretch. We got two more innings to go. John chapter 19, and I, knowing that there's cheesecake in the back of my mind... John chapter 19, verse number 17, the Bible says, and he, in case you didn't catch the theme tonight, we're, gonna, we're just going to stay on the cross today. Is that all right? Amen. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many times you'll see, maybe in a, in a, in a denominational type of church, you'll see a cross and it'll say, I-N-R-I. I used to wonder, I was searching for a Latin meaning of that. I thought, what does that mean? Where it means... Jesus, Nazareth, Re is Latin for king, Rena as queen as well, queen of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, king of Israel, okay, or king of the Jews. And that's what Pilate wrote. And this title read many of the Jews in verse 20, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. Now watch this. We sing the song, on a hill. The Bible doesn't say it was far away. The Bible says it was nigh unto the city. I don't think it's wrong that we've seen it. For us right here, it's far away, okay? And uh, I'm not trying to split hairs on that or anything like that. And, but according to the Bible, and I always pictured it, man, this is way outside of the city, but the Bible says this crucifixion scene, it was nigh to the city. Jerusalem at that time was not a very big city. It's not the metropolitan area that it is right now. It was a very small city. And this was nigh to the city. And the Bible says this. 
And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews and Pilate, write not that I am the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. I like that statement right there. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's that phrase again. We love it. Which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. You may be seated tonight. Could you picture with me in your mind, and we'll pray in a moment here. We're in the most unbelievable scene in the history of mankind. We talked about it this morning. We said it was the sovereign's design. It was the Savior's doing. It was the saint's delight. It was the Satan's doom. But it was a bloody raw scene. Unbelievable what Jesus Christ has gone through just to get up to verse number 17. I remember as we were there and we went up to the Temple Mount where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. And, and when you look at there and then the Dome of the Rock, which is the, what people think is a mosque on top of the Temple Mount, that gold dome, that's not a mosque, that's actually a monument there, the Dome on the Rock. And that is most likely the site on Mount Moriah where uh, Abraham was, was going to sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. And you enter in at the western wall right there. There's a ramp that's there in the western wall. And you enter up and you walk up there and you go through a little bit of security uh, checkpoint right there. And then you're up on the Temple Mount area where the first level is. And you go up here and then you come back down. And as you walk around, there's another mosque on that mountaintop. And then you go down to where the Lion's Gate is at the north end of the temple. Once you go down there where the Lion's Gate is, where it kind of meets a corner, if you were to go straight to the north, you would find St. Anne's Church, named after the mother of Mary. Just five steps beyond St. Anne's Church is the Pool of Bethesda, where the man was healed. And you come back out to that street right there, and it's called the Via Dolorosa. Those of you that were Christians in the 80s and 70s, you may remember the song, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the way of the cross. On that Via Dolorosa, there are seven different stations where Jesus reportedly uh, fell at certain points in that statement. But if you were to go about halfway in there, you would find there is the hall of Pontius Pilates, Pontius Pilate. As you begin to walk there, you step this way is Pilate's summer quarters. And this way to the right is the judgment hall. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ as he has already been uh, spat upon as lot that's taking place and then he stands in Pilate's hall and, and Pilate says, don't you know I have power to release you? And Jesus quips back at him, don't you know what I power I have? To put it in our modern terms. 
Pilate begins to try to release Jesus Christ, and he says, maybe if I beat him, maybe then they'll, they'll, after the scourging, they'll let him go, and Pilate was wrong. They began to scourge Jesus. They, at some point in there, they began to mock him and, and put a garment over his head. And the Bible says they began to buffet his face. They began to smack the Lord Jesus and say, if you're really the son of God, tell us who hits you. What an awful scene. And then they said, surely this man claims to be a king. Go get him a purple robe. It's the color of royalty. Go get him a purple robe. And they got him and put that robe on his bloody beaten back. And you all understand this. If you've ever had anything that's on you as you've been bleeding, when it comes to the point to take it back off, I could not imagine. And then they said, oh, a king, if he's a king, he's got to have a crown. Go get us some of them. And by the way, I've seen those thorns. Many of them are three inches long. And you see those thorns. They said, go make us. Go forge a crown out of those thorns. They began to forge that crown. And they said, well, if he's going to have a crown, he's got to have a royal scepter. And they go get a reed made in mockery. And they, just like a coronation process, they begin to crush that crown of thorns on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ with the scepter that they will place in his hand. They begin to mock all hell, king of the Jews. And then the Bible says they lead him to the place of the cross. And they said, matter of fact, as if it's not bloody enough yet. Put that cross on him. We're going to make him carry his own cross. The Bible describes him walking that Via Dolorosa. And he's so weak. He's been in jail half the night. He's been sped upon. He's been beaten so many times. His visage at this point is already so marred. We can barely tell it's a man that's on there. And the Bible says under that weight, he begins to collapse. And Simon the Cyrene is called to help the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes the rest of the way to the cross. And Jesus is unlike anybody they've ever crucified before. Could you imagine the hardened men that did crucifixions? Could you imagine the amount of death that these men have seen? Uh, they're dealing with, they're far beyond any post-traumatic stress disorder. These are hardened, hardcore men. They don't care about anybody. They don't care about anything. Nothing bothers them, but something begins to bother them because this man is not fighting. This man said, no man takes my life from me, but I'm going to lay it down. And this man, unlike other men, Begins to stretch those arms out. And they're so used to people fighting. But he stretches that arm out and they take that hammer and that spike. They begin to nail his hands and feet to the cross. 
No doubt, as history tells us, as the crucifixion was made to be as excruciating as possible. Like that verse, they would bind them to the cross because they didn't want them right away to be ripped by the nails. And historically, they tell us, just like that verse in Psalm chapter 118, they would bind the sacrifice with cords to the altar. Not in a position to support them, but just because when that cross would go up, and if you've ever put up a post, anything into a post hole, you know what happens. Right when you're just about this angle right here, it goes boom, boom. Could you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says his bones went out of joint as it jolts. What? What a scene. Not only that, he's beginning to be mocked. If you're the son of God, he's mocked by that sign up there that says king of the Jews and Pilate wrote it in mockery and the Jews took it as mockery of them and they said, don't call him our king that he claimed to be. And out of everything going on in this scene, God then gets an extremely narrow camera out and he focuses in on four men. And the Bible says that they begin to part Jesus' garments among them. Of course, when somebody dies, just like our kids, who's going to get their stuff? But the Lord Jesus Christ has no kids. He has no one to carry on his lineage. He has no one to carry on his his legacy. And so they say, oh, we get his stuff. The Bible says they begin to part his things. But then all of a sudden they notice he's got a garment that has no seam. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but in Bible days, for you to have a garment with no seam, that is an expensive piece of clothing. Most of their clothing was made of a kind of a patch quilt type of thing, and they'd put patches together, much like a suit. You've got the sleeves added on over here. But when you'd have a garment that had no seam, it was one piece, that was an expensive piece of clothing. As a matter of fact, as far as I can tell, maybe you can find another one, but there are only two places in the Bible where a coat without seam is mentioned. The one is when they came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a young man, he's only mentioned in one gospel. I personally believe it's Joseph Arimathea. I have no biblical proof of that, but I personally believe that's who it was. But the Bible says they grabbed his garment and he ran away. And then this passage. And here's what they say to themselves. Oh, fellas, I realize there's four of us and we could cut this garment in fours. But here's what we're going to do instead. Instead of cutting this garment in four pieces, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cast lots for that piece. And by the way, this was a prophecy. The Bible said this in Psalm chapter 22. We referenced it this morning. They, they say, he said they were going to part his garments and they were going to cast lots for them. You say, Brother Allen, what is casting a lot? Can I put it into our modern day context? They were just going to roll the dice. 
They're going to draw straws. Or can I put it this way? They're just going to play a little game at the cross. Can you imagine the scene that I just spent 10 minutes describing to you? It's bloody, it's gory, it's nasty, the smells, no doubt it smelled that iron blood smell. It's horrific. His mother's there. We're seeing what's going on. This is a place of torture. This is a hardened place. This is a place of the skull. Many legends say that there were literally some skulls that were on that place. And in the middle of it all, there's four men playing games. Could it be tonight what is standing between us and having revival is that many of us, while we're in a serious place, while we're in this place of torment and torture and everything ought to be our attention focused on Christ, and yet here we are at the foot of the cross playing games. I want to preach to you with the help of God tonight on when the cross becomes a game. When the cross becomes a game. Father, Lord, we sure do need you tonight. Thank you for the folks that were saved and the good decisions that were made. Many spoke to me after the service and talked about the crosses that they were going to have to bear that you were helping them through in their lives. And Lord, what a wonderful thing that is. But Lord, it is possible While this meeting has been planned and while there's been money spent and while we've come from one nation to another and while there's been folks have been praying for many, many days, while some folks even came here last night at midnight, and this is a serious thing, could it be that many tonight are doing nothing more than letting the cross become a game to them? Help us by your grace tonight. Save the lost. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Here is the problem many times in our Christianity. We know all the right words to say. We know when to say amen. We've memorized most of the hymn book. We know when to raise our hand even. We know when to shout. We know the order of service. We've taught that Sunday school class for years and years, haven't we? We've witnessed to people before. We've told people how to be saved. We've gone through all of the motions of it. We've sung in the choir for many years. We may even be in the ensemble. We may even be a soloist in the church. We may be a deacon or a preacher, an assistant pastor in the church. But God help us and God deliver us if we ever get to the point where it's become nothing more than just a game. Oh, I've sat in church just like you have at times. I've even sat in church and I've said, I don't care what they sing. I don't care what they preach. I'm just going to get through this service. Now, you may not be a sinner like I am. But some of you need to straighten up your halos tonight because your horns are starting to show. I've never done that. Listen, thank God you've never done that. But I'm just telling you what it's like to be a human being and a preacher here tonight. 
I've said in church, and I have said, I'm not going to walk forward. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to listen. I'll, I'll, I'll sing the words, and I'll go through the motions of it all. You ever been in a church service? And those of you that ever sit on a platform or sing a special, if you're ever on the platform, you know this to be true. You can look in the same service, and there is somebody absolutely not within a thousand miles of that service. I'm talking about they're writing grocery lists. They're texting their friends. Listen, I've sat in church services where a man stood back in the back and he texted the entire time. The only time he did not text and was not on his phone is when I said, some of you need to put your phone down and get back in this service. And he looked up for about 10 seconds and went right back to his phone. And I've looked in that same service, looked in another section, some blessed saint of God has tears rolling down their face. I've seen, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, bless his name forever. And I've seen some people go, Others. The old statement goes sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. Because you've seen it all before, haven't you? You've been to church before. You you know what to say. Matter of fact, you know what words to say and not to say in the service, don't you? Those words I use outside of church. That way I act outside of church here. And listen to me, mom and dad. Can I say to you tonight, mom and dad, wherever you are in this building, one of the biggest detriments to the next generation is you and I playing games at the cross. Well, we're in a place where we should be in love with Jesus and we ought to be passionate about him and the spirit of revival ought to be welling up in our souls. But it's not. And it's not the preacher's fault. And it's not the deacon's fault. And it's not your husband or your mom or daddy's fault. It's your fault because we've learned how to play the game, haven't we? Amazing, I went to a Bible college, and it's not the fault of my Bible college, but sometimes, Brother Fury, it seemed like those that said yes, sir, the most, and those that towed the line the, bo- the most, and those that we call, used to call them self-appointed staff members, they were checking up on everybody else. And you're, listen, one strand of your hair better not touch your ears, according to them, because when it does, they're going to the office, and they're going to turn you in. You know the type. We're worried about all the wrong things. And they were the ones that, man, they knew how to play the game. They looked right. Their tie was in a knot just right. They had on the right shoes. They had on the right tie. They had the right amount of makeup. They had all of it together. But when it came down to it, the seriousness of it all, they were just simply playing the game. There's church members all over the world that are trying to impress a pastor or a group of people around them. Can I say to you, if you're trying to climb some spiritual ladder, here's what you're going to find out. There is no ladder. And if there is, it sure doesn't lead to God. 
You see, the way up in God's economy is to get down. The Bible says, if a man will humble himself, God will exalt him in due time. But if you will exalt yourself, he's going to humble you. But we all like Judas sometimes. We like to play that game, don't we? Oh, you remember Judas playing the game, don't you? What is this woman with alabaster? Why is she giving so much to Jesus? Doesn't she know we could sell that and give it to the poor? That was a game to Judas. Because the Bible says he had no interest in the poor because he held the money bag. That's why he won. It was nothing more. Could you imagine if you believe he's the Messiah, if you believe he's the anointed one, why in the world do you lie to his face? And try to claim to be something spiritual that you're really not. I'm just saying tonight, we have played the game. Oh, preacher, we ought to be taking care of the poor. Oh, preacher, we ought to do more. Yet we never show up for soul winning. We never show up for discipleship. We don't do anything because we're so used to playing the game with our mouth and our actions are speaking louder. Oh, you remember when Judas played the game again, don't you? One of you is going to betray me. And as the disciples, one by one, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And he says, thou sayest. Judas still stays at the table, doesn't he? And he reiterates it again. And he says, no, it's the one that is going to dip the sop with me. And here Judas now, for the second time, he's called out and he dips the sop with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't stand up and say, yes, it's me. I'm going to betray you. No, he sneaks out the side like a little scared whip puppy. And he goes and finds occasion to betray him. He was playing a game. You know, he was playing a game again. If you look at my Bible tonight, in Matthew chapter 26, there is a leaf from an olive tree in the gar- from the Garden of Gethsemane in my Bible right now. Here Judas comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like other times, he's going to greet Jesus. You know, preacher, I've learned a long time ago, sometimes those who pat you on the back the most are looking for a place to stab you. And here comes Judas. Just like all those other times, oh, brother, it's good to see you. And the Bible says he plants a kiss right on the cheek of Jesus Christ. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Somebody said one time, they said Judas stopped off and he started to put some lip balm on. And the disciple says, what are you doing? He says, I don't tell you how to do your job. Don't tell me how to do mine. Anyways, and uh, sorry, Lord, forgive me. And uh, could you imagine? Just like other times, here he comes. Oh. Jesus said, betrayest thou the son of God with a kiss? I mean, come on. The other disciples probably thought, oh, yeah, of course, he just came back. Of course he's going to greet Jesus. He's playing a game. And the Bible says they come and take Jesus. All of a sudden, Judas gets that money in his hand. And then he sees later that Jesus is condemned. And he says, what have I done? What have I done? I've betrayed innocent blood. He said, what did he do? He got to the place that some of you are going to get to way too late too. 
finally realized what he did, and now it's too late, and some of you are going to spend 10, 20, 30 years in church playing the game, but when your kids are out of the house, it's too late. When your husband's gone, it's too late. When your opportunity to serve is gone, it's too late, and now you know you were playing a game. And he comes back to the high priest and says, I can't take this money. And the high priest says, what is that to me? See thou to that. They didn't trust him because they knew he was playing a game. And I'm going to tell you, the reason why some of you can't witness to some of the people in your life and they don't believe you and they don't trust you is because they've seen behind the games you've been playing. There are some of us that could not witness to people that we are friends with right now because they know the gig is up. There are some of us that we could not listen to me. There are men all over this auditorium. You cannot lead your family and it's not because you're evil. It's not because you're wicked. It's because your family knows the game. And when you come to church and you can wave your hand all you want to and you can shout all you want to, but they know what it's like when that door closes at home. They know what you listen to, not the songs of God. They know how you handle themselves. They know how you treat them. And the reason, listen, I'm not saying you bear no personal responsibility. We're going to get to that point right now. But I'm saying we ought to remove every irresponsibility that we have on their souls that they wouldn't see us playing a game. Can I say to you, you're you parents tonight, and you Christians here tonight, you moms and dads, and even you teenagers here tonight, your problem is not that you are a sinner. Your problem is not that you struggle. Your problem is that you play games. We wear our pharisaical, hypocritical masks and wonder why there's no power of God. There's no power of God many times because we are simply playing a game and wearing a spiritual mask. Many in the Bible, oh, they played the game. Oh, Adam, remember? Adam played the game, didn't he? Oh, you don't remember when Adam and Eve played the game? They ate that fruit, and God came down and said, where y'all at? God was from Georgia that day. Where y'all at? Where are you, Adam and Eve? And they said, well, we're over here. Well, come on out. Well, we're naked. What do you mean you're naked? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that fruit? Well, well, you, know, you know, it was just, uh, I, 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 like, I was supposed to eat out of the tree next to it. Somebody slipped that fruit in there. What does Eve do? It's not my fault. It's the snake's fault. Adam, whose fault? It's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. Playing games. You don't think God knows? Cain and Abel. Hey, Cain. Where's your brother, Cain? (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? I'm telling you, it just ticks me off. The audacity. The audacity to honor, remember that king of kings, lord of lords, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Tesekinu, Jehovah Makadesh. Listen, all of those gods, he looked him in his face and he said, am I my brother's keeper? 
How dare you? And he plays some little play on words with God Almighty. (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? By the way, what is the answer to that? Is he his brother's keeper? I'm going to help you. Yes. Even in the New Testament, he says, ye which are strong, he said, you're supposed to bear the iniquities of the weak. You're supposed to, if you see a brother fall, it says you're supposed to restore him in the spirit of meekness lest you be tempted also. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. But here, he wasn't concerned with keeping his brother or not. He was playing a game, see? Cain played that game. God said, what are you talking about? The blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. And can I tell you, some of us men, the blood of our sons and daughters are crying out of the ground because we're saying, well, it's a, they got their own way. Yeah, but maybe you and I ought to get on the money with our spirituality. They can make what, and listen, my kids could go to the devil tomorrow, but watch this. They're not going to go to the devil because dad's playing a game. Oh, they played a game. Remember, Abraham played a game. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into the land over there. And and, and Sarah, you're a beautiful girl. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a little game here. We're just going to say that you're our sister. And almost causes Abimelech and other kings to sin. And by the way, isn't it amazing? He lied about his wife. And then all of a sudden, Isaac does the same thing. She's my wife and almost causes judgment on the nation again because they're simply playing games. David was playing games, wasn't he? David should have been out to war, but guess what he was doing? He was on a siesta. He was on vacation instead of doing what he was supposed to do. Can I put it this way? He was playing games. And when kings went out to war, he stayed at home. And all of a sudden, he sees, he, when he, by the way, when oftentimes when you are not where you are supposed to be, you will always end up seeing something you're not supposed to see. And when you see things you're not supposed to see, you end up lusting after things you shouldn't lust after. And when you lust long enough, because when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when you lust after things you shouldn't lust after, you end up sinning sins. And then when you don't want to confess your sin, but you want to play the game, you end up covering your sins. And all of a sudden, David's trying to play this game with God. And David's like, oh no, she's pregnant? You're pregnant? Him and Bathsheba had that conversation. You're pregnant? And so David, instead of confessing, what does he do? Go get Uriah. Oh, go get Uriah because I don't want the mask to come off and everybody see me for what I really am. Hello? I've been there. I don't want the mask to come off because if my church saw what I really was, if my Sunday school kids saw what I really was, if my wife saw what I really was, if my husband only knew, if my children only knew what I was hiding from them, oh, they would kick me off the throne. I would lose my position. I may lose my power. I may lose my prestige in the community. So I said, go get Uriah. Uriah comes back and David says, hey, man. You've been doing a good job. And I guarantee Uriah in the back of his mind has to be thinking, why in the world would the king call me only? 
He comes back and he says, Uriah, you've been doing a good job, man. Why don't you go in there unto your wife? And Uriah says, How can I go to my wife? I've got soldiers. They're not home with their wives. And David said, oh, no, I got I to gotta up the ante. I got to play a bigger game now. And then, you notice how sin works? When we're playing a game, the game, it always has to increase bigger. The lie always has to get bigger, doesn't it? You're listening very well tonight. Thank you. It always, the sham has to get bigger. And all of a sudden, he's like, I got to get this man drunk. Bible says he gets Dave, but here is Uriah. Listen to me. Uriah in a drunken stupor had more integrity than the psalmist of Israel. And Uriah in a drunken state still says, I will not go into my wife. And all of a sudden, David has to get the game bigger, see? And he sends Uriah with a note in his hand that says, send him to the hottest part of the battle and then withdraw yourself from him. What? This valiant soldier, one of David's mighty men, he is about to sacrifice for a game he's playing. And finally... The game is up. And here comes Nathan. He says, I'm going to tell you an illustration. Let me tell you about this, this, and this. What do you think about that? And the Bible says David became wroth. Isn't it amazing? We weep and we get upset and we get angry at everybody else's game until it's ours. Some of the biggest hypocrites in church, you look down the aisle at somebody else who's not taking God seriously. You're like, oh, how did those kids do that? I don't understand how they do that. And we're playing the same game. Matter of fact, many times we're playing a worse game. David got mad over some stupid sheep. You took a man's wife. David said, he better pay for that fourfold. And Nathan says, thou art the man. And all of a sudden, the mask falls off. And thank God David repented. And may I say to you tonight, this isn't the point of the, there is always hope for those that repent when their masks fall off. There is always hope for those tonight. There was hope. Listen, Peter denied him three times, didn't he? He even said, I don't know the blankety blanket man and cussed and swore. But yet he repented with bitterness and tears. And less than 50 days later, he is preaching to 3,000 souls that are getting born again. If you'll let the mask fall off tonight, if you'll see yourself as he sees you and get the grace of God on your soul, but it won't happen until somebody says, you're the man, you're the woman, you're the teenager, and you says, yes, I have sinned. Or is it just a game? I tell you, you want, you want, you want a revival started tonight? I didn't bring it in my suitcase. I don't, I don't have it bottled up. But revival always starts when the masks fall off. Revival, can I put it this way? 
Revival will start when the games stop. Let me tell you a few things about the cross tonight. We're almost done. The cross, number one, it's a sobering place. It's a sobering place. And I tell you, it is high time some of you young people sitting under the sound of my voice, you start taking God seriously. It's not a game. There are men, women, and boys and girls that need to be saved. There are lives that need to be changed. You live in a nation of 30 million people that most are going to hell in a handbasket. Listen to me. You need to come to the cross tonight and understand this is a sobering place. And here they are playing a game. Here they are casting lots. When they should have been weeping, when there should have been despair, when there should have been repentance, there was nothing more than who's going to get the stuff. It's a sobering place. I wonder if you came to church tonight or in this revival and you just said, eh, it's just another one. Or do you pray with the intent of this could be the most important revival our church has ever had? Some of you, your kids could get saved this week if you'd stop playing the game. For some of you, your husband you've been praying for, that son or daughter you've been praying for, listen, those people you've been praying for, they might get right, they might come to church, but it's going to take a group of sober Christians. Be sober. Second, First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, be sober and be vigilant for your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. There is not a more serious place than Golgotha's hill that day. Those little grandbabies that sit beside you, it's serious enough for them. It's a serious place. Watch this tonight. It's not only a sobering place, it's a sacrificial place. It's a sacrificial place. The cross is where Jesus laid it all down. And I'm telling you, there's some Christians tonight that need to get back to some sacrifice. Well, we lay it down for him. Paul put it this way. I count all things but dung that I might win Christ. He said nothing else matters. Jesus, just a couple days before this, he is in that garden of Gethsemane praying and he says, I'm going to lay aside my own will and I'm going to pick up the cross and I'm going to drink of this bitter cup. I don't care what it costs. Can I tell you tonight, you will never have revival until you get to the place of sacrifice. Many of us, we talk about wanting revival and will not even sacrifice 30 minutes of prayer will not sacrifice getting up a little early or staying up a little late or taking a little walk behind the house and getting a hold of God. Many of us, we want our kids to get right with God. They say, oh, it staggered me the other day. I read a statistic about parents. It said most parents pray less than two minutes a day for their kids. Do we think it's a game? Is it just a roll of the dice whether our kids love Jesus or not? And we can't determine that for them, but we can sure determine not to play a game with our kids. It's a place of sacrifice. Not only is it a place of sacrifice, 
Watch this. It's a separating place. I want you to look down. The Bible says this, and we know all about this place of the skull. We know it's sobering. We know it's a sacrifice. There are people that were killed here. But I want you to notice this. Verse number 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. There's three women. Then when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by, there's four people. Did you see that? There's four. Possibly five, unless that is, I've I've debated whether that it was Mary, the, uh, the mother of Jesus, and uh, his mother's sister, that's two, and probably that's another separate one, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Mag. There's probably four, okay? That's unless one is an antecedent. Go English on you tonight. And uh, one is the antecedent for that, but I believe, I believe there's four. And then you have John, who is that disciple whom he loved. There's five people, Brother Kevin. Five. Can I say to you, The closer you get to true cross living, the less your crowd is going to be. You know what I want to ask? Where are you 5,000 that he fed? I mean, he broke bread with 5,000 of you. Not only that, but in another verse, another chapter, he broke bread with 4,000 of you. There's 9,000 people when there's bread going out and there's only five at the cross. Where's the crowd saying Hosanna to the son of David? Where's that blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord crowd? Where's that 120 upper room crowd? Where's the disciples? We're on the same channel right there. Where's the disciples? There's only one. Judas has hung himself. We know there's 11 left. There's 11 left and there's only one at the cross? Because the closer you get to the cross the smaller your crowd's going to be. I say to you, the crowd that may be truly seeking revival, it might be a small crowd, but you ought to be determined to be numbered in that crowd. Nobody else in your high school may be seeking it, but you ought to seek it. Nobody else in your family, listen, your husband won't get on board or your wife won't get on board. Maybe your kids aren't on board. But listen to me, there ought to be one in your house that's on board. You may be in a place that you say, nobody at my job, nobody's a Christian here, nobody in my school is, nobody in my place of work, nobody else in the family is, but there ought to be somebody in that family that gets back to the cross and doesn't play a game with the Lord. Here they are. Out of all the people, where's the deaf people that he healed? Where's where's the man with the withered hand? Where's Lazarus? 
Where's the damsel that was given? Where's the centurion? He had power among the Romans. Where's the centurion whose son was killed that had greater faith than anybody in Israel? Where are you at? Where are you at? And I'm asking you tonight when it comes to revival and the seriousness of the things of God, where are you at tonight? Would you be one of those five standing by the cross? Or is your liquor more important? Would you be standing by the cross? Or your little crowd of friends, they're more important, aren't they? Would you be standing by the cross? Or the ones you went to the party last week, they're more important. Would you be standing by the cross? Or that dope-smoking, weed-smoking crowd, is that your crowd tonight? Would you be by the cross? Or you, I don't want to go, I don't want to take things that seriously. I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to take it that seriously. Well, Jesus took you pretty seriously on the cross of Calvary. It's a separating place. Four women and one man. God help us men to make up that gap. Isn't it a shame? I go to church, I go to Bible college after Bible college, and it's almost two to one women versus men. And it's not one Bible college, listen to me, it's every one of them. And it's not new. Jesus, listen, it was three to one at the cross. There's four women, four to one, excuse me, at the cross. Let us men be men of character and men that say, I'm going to stick with Jesus all the way. I'm not going to let my wife go out there. I'm not going to let a teenage girl go out there. I want to get to the cross myself. Stick with Jesus all the way. It's a sovereign place. Acts chapter 2, we won't turn there, but if you were to turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, this is what we were talking about this morning, where he was delivered up by the determinate counsel of God. Can I put it this way? Jesus was in the will of God at the cross. He was in the will of God at the cross. It's a sovereign place. I wonder how many of you in the spirit of revival tonight will say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I wonder how many of you, your theme would be when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds in our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and to all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Does the, your heart, the spirit control? Because you can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul. Are you yielded to God tonight? You know what some of you need to do with your habits? Because here's what we hide behind. I don't want to give that up for Jesus. I don't want to sacrifice that for Jesus. Here's what you do. Bring it to the altar. And if he doesn't give it back to you, then leave it there. 
He said, but I don't know about all this drinking. There's a couple Bible verses. Listen to me. Bring your liquor to the the altar tonight and lay it down here. Bring your gossiping tongues. Bring your bitterness. Bring your CBD oil. Bring your bad attitude. Bring your lawlessness. Bring all of that down here. Bring your carousing around with the opposite sex. Bring it down here and surrender it to him. And if he gives it back to you, then get two handfuls of it and keep it. But I'll tell you why you won't do that. Because you know he won't. You know if you were to come to this sovereign place and say, God, what do you want? There are some people that will not put themselves at the mercy of God because you know he is calling you to preach. You know he is calling you to ministry. And you don't dare get to the cross because you've got plans and you've got a career and you've got all of these things playing games at the cross. Oh, tonight, don't you know it's a scriptural place? Psalm 22 tells us all about it. We talked about it this morning. Can I tell you this? Second to last, it's a serving place. Did you see what the Bible said? When Jesus saw the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith to his mother, woman, behold thy Son. In verse 27, then he saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own house. Watch this. If you're going to live the cross life, it's a life of serving. See, the closer you get to the cross, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. I'm telling you tonight, the cross is a serving place. Oh, Brother Allen, I want to lead in prayer. There's nobody leading prayer at the cross. Well, Allen, Brother Allen, I want to be on the deacon board. There's no deacon board at the cross. Brother Allen, I want to be the prominent church member. There's no prominence at the cross. Brother Allen, can, can I sing the solo? There's no solos. There's not even a choir at the cross. Brother Allen, uh, uh, couldn't I be the one that has the, I, I can have the title in the church? I can be, I can, maybe I could produce some Christian CDs. No, the cross is a serving place. Jesus told his disciples, he said, let me tell you who's going to be the greatest. It'll be the servant. He'll be the greatest. Isn't that so opposite of the world? We live in a dog-eat-dog world. I will make you look bad. I will do everything I can to step on you on my way to the top. But Jesus said, listen, the way to the top is to get down low. It's a serving place. My pastor for years has preached this to us. He said, everybody wants to be a servant until somebody treats you like one. But Jesus needs servants. And the closer you get to that cross, there's no fame in it. Missionaries, I, I, I try to encourage missionaries all the time. I just preached a missions conference last week, but listen to me. And I tell all missionaries about it. I say, listen, everything is going to be fresh and it's going to be new and deputation. I know deputation gets old and you, we were talking about that this afternoon and your pastor's been on deputation before, but it's new churches and you get, and it's all yes and this and this and this. And then all of a sudden they get to the mission field and nobody's clapping for them anymore. 
and nobody's giving them a Christmas in July. Well, I want to start a church. Well, that's wonderful. And we're going to say, yes, praise the Lord. And we may bring you up on a platform and we may have you at a conference talk about starting churches. But listen to me. When you get out there and you live by the cross, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be wiping dirty noses. And you're going to be tying shoes and mapping up vomit. And dealing with men who treat their wives like garbage and women who don't want to come to church and a rebellious son and a rebellious daughter. But listen to me, that's worth it all because that's what cross living is all about. You're the one getting the call at two in the morning that such and such has passed away and such and such has cancer. Listen to me tonight. It's not a place of glory. It's a place of service. We got to get to the cross. Lastly, tonight, I won't spend my time. It's a saving place. It's a saving place. Can I say to you tonight, if you're not saved, oh, years I spend in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free and pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything, and now I gladly own him as my king. And now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. In the cross, in the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, the stream for all to see, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, until my raptured soul shall find rest Beyond the river. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where from cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied glory to his name. I'm telling you tonight, if there's one thing we need to do, we got to get back to the cross. I don't ever want to be accused of playing games at the cross. Oh, think about this. We won't turn to it tonight. Luke chapter 14, though, verse 25 through 33. Here's what Jesus said. If you will not come after him and pick up your cross. And follow him. You cannot be his disciple. And here's what I believe needs to happen tonight. I believe you and I need to symbolically. I honestly believe the Christian life is this simple, Pastor. We've got to get back to the cross. I know there's complications in there. I know some of you, because of sin in your life or sin in somebody else's life or just how things have... I know life gets complicated, doesn't it? 
But here's something that ought to be very simple. All of us can get to the cross. You say, my marriage is... I got a solution. Get to the cross. Brother Allen, my teenagers, oh my. Get to the cross. Get to the cross. Brother Allen, you don't know I got this sin in my life. And I've been dealing with it. Excuse me. I've been dealing with it for years. And it just doesn't seem like I'm ever going to get the victory. Oh, there's victory in the cross. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. That only happens if you get to the cross where he is. I am crucified with Christ, yet not I. And yet I live, and yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. Listen, by his stripes you can be healed tonight. But you got to get to the cross. I'm saying there's some teenagers in here tonight that you need to get a real dose of the cross. You need to get your eyes off your friends and get your eyes off somebody that you've been looking up to and the musicians you've been watching and the social media you've been absorbing and taking into your life and get your eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ and say, oh, he is altogether lovely again. And I want to stoke the fires again of revival. And I'm going to tell you, nothing will stoke revival more than us getting back to where it all starts. Let's hit a reset button tonight. And let's lay down ourselves at the cross, at this sobering place, at this serious place, at the sovereign place, at the scriptural place. Listen to me, at the serving place and at the saving place. Would you mind the Lord tonight? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. In the middle of one of the most horrific scenes mankind has ever known. Four men are playing games. May it never be said, listen, I'm made of the same stuff you are. May it never be said that evangelist Calvin Allen is playing the game. And whenever I do, oh, Holy Ghost, would you convict me? I want the Spirit of God to pierce my heart. Days, some of us, day after day after day, we've been reading a book that has made no connection to us. And it's not God's fault. It's because we're more worried about checking off a box on our prayer list and checking a box off the scripture than we are connecting to the author. Others have already come. Would you make your way to an old-fashioned altar? Would you do some business with God tonight? I'm saying come from where you are and symbolically say I'm getting back to the cross. I'm letting the mask fall off tonight. You know, we could hit the ground running tomorrow if, 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 listen, if Christians in this room tonight would just simply say I'm done playing the game. I'm not worried about what anybody else is thinking. I'm not worried about any other teenager or young man or young women. I'm worried about what Jesus thinks. I mentioned briefly here tonight but I wonder if there's somebody to say, Brother Allen, I need to get to the cross. I need to be saved. I don't even know him yet personally as my Savior. If that's you here tonight, can I say you are loved? I came all the way from the States just to come and tell you about Jesus. And I would love to introduce you to him. But I want to pray for you tonight. 
And if you're in the room tonight and say, Brother Allen, I don't know that I'm saved. I've never come to the cross and accepted Jesus as my own Savior. If that's you here tonight, Brother Allen, would you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand and say, Brother Allen, it's me. Would you pray for me? I won't embarrass you. I don't know your name. I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to pray for you in a minute. Would there be anybody that needed some prayer on that? I don't know for sure I'm on my way to heaven, but I want to know. Would you pray for me? Here's my hand. Anybody like that? Here's my hand. I need to be saved. Thank you. Thank you, young person. Anybody else? Would you pray for me, Brother Allen? I don't know if I die, I go to heaven. Listen to me. It's a serious place. This cross, if you don't come to the cross, you cannot be saved. You will not be saved. Is there anybody else to join that one? Brother Allen, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I need to be saved. Would you pray for me? I'll pray for you. I won't embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I guarantee, 100%. But I do want to pray for you. I'm not saved and I need to be anybody else to join those. Maybe there's a parent here tonight. And maybe you have dropped the ball with your kids. And say, but this day forward, it's going to be real in my house. It's going to be real in my house. Listen to me. Listen to me, dads, fathers. There needs to be some fathers tonight that purpose in their heart. It's going to be real. It's going to be real from this day forward. It's going to be real in our home. And we're going to be in love with Jesus. And I'm going to talk like a Christian daddy out of talk. Listen to me tonight. Your kids don't need you to be one way at church and one way at home and one way at work. What they need is somebody that's going to stay at the cross. That's what they need. Your wife, sir, doesn't need one man who treats the church women like they're wonderful and treats her like a dog. Let me say, you need to get right with the Lord tonight and get back to the cross. Mind the Lord, my friends. We're almost done here. Let the Lord have his way. Don't forget the cross.